Well, hey everyone, how are you doing today? Uh, my name is Ben, if we have not met, and I get the opportunity to be able to share as we continue in our road trip series. And I do wanna say thanks everyone for being here. Those of you that are online, we are so glad that you're here as well. Um, and it's just good to see as I woke up and I came in this morning, I saw that there was some snow on the ground. It was actively snowing as I came in. And I thought to myself, I wonder if that's gonna impact the amount of people that show up. But great job for those of you. For those of you that are joining online, great job there as well. Um, I am pretty excited because today I get to share with you uh, a message from Luke chapter 19 as we continue through this uh, road trip series. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, we have been working through the book of Luke for close to, uh, it's over a year and a half. It's been a while since I've actually counted. So we've been working through this for a while and we are in chapter Chapter 19, and uh, specifically the sub-series that we're on, we called Road Trip, because from basically chapter 9 to chapter 19, what we see is Jesus is traveling and making his way to Jerusalem. In, in chapter 9, verses 51, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was really the purpose of why he came. Ultimately, he came so that he could die on a cross, so that we could be in right relationship with, with God the Father. And so this is his purpose, the reason why he came. And so we've been watching as he's been traveling and ministering, as he's been doing all of these miraculous healings. Uh, he's been teaching about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he's also been facing a lot of different opposition from the religious elite. And so today I get to talk to you about the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So this is kind of towards the tail end of this road trip series. In fact, Christian will be wrapping it up next week. But I'm excited to share with you basically uh, a service that you would normally hear on Palm Sunday. And I'm excited because I think that this has implications that last far beyond a one Sunday uh, a year sermon. This is implications that impact our every single day and impacts all of eternity. And so I hope to communicate well what I feel like God has been, been sharing with me. And we are glad that you're here with us. Like I said, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into this as soon as I, I pray, and then we'll get into the text. So here we go. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you that we get this opportunity to come before you, that we get to connect as a church, Lord, whether that would be in person, in our drive-in, online, Lord God, that we have the opportunity to build relationships with one another. Lord, and I thank you that we get to open up your word, that we get to see what it is that you desire to teach us and how you desire to challenge us and to shape us and to move and work within our lives. Lord God, I pray that my words would not be my words this morning, that you would just use them and that you would speak to your children in whatever it is that you desire for them to hear. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for each and every single person that is here. I pray that your blessing and your spirit and your power would go before them, or that they would just be disciples, and like what we will see today, Lord, that we would declare your praises. Lord, we thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. So where we are, just kind of where we are specifically in, in chapter 19, just where we've been for the last few weeks, I want to give you a recap because as we start this, uh, in, we're, we're in Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. So as we start 28, you'll see that it kind of connects directly where we've been. So basically where we've been for the last few weeks is that Jesus is about 18 miles from the city of Jerusalem. Again, traveling from town to town, city to city, kind of taking his time. Now crowds are gathering and there is a movement towards Jerusalem as Passover is about to begin. And so 
They are making their way there, and as Jesus is doing this, what we see in the beginning of 19 is that there's this man named Zacchaeus. He is a short, despised, and hated tax collector, but he has this incredible encounter with Jesus, and his life is transformed. And so beginning of 19, we see this awesome encounter. We were able to read it. If you want to kind of hear where we've been, you can go back a couple weeks to when Christian spoke that last message. And then where we go from there is that kind of immediately following that, possibly even on the road, but probably still around Jericho, Jesus then tells this story, right? This is the story that we even talked about last week. And this story or this parable that he tells is in response to the believers thinking that Jesus's kingdom was going to come immediately. So they think that it's going to happen like there's this buildup and this anticipation and this excitement as they're making their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to have this incredible entry and they are hyped thinking that the time is now. There's an active buildup, and they're just exciting and anticipating what Jesus is doing. But Jesus tells this story that kind of explains two different things in it. The, the two things or the two uh, lessons in this story is, number one, is that in this story, this parable, the nobleman or the king was going away for a long time, and then he would be back. Jesus was actually telling his followers and the disciples that this is exactly what he would be doing as well that he would be going away. And then the second lesson in that, that we learned from what we were talking about last week, is that the Lord's servants would need to be faithful and productive during his absence. But of course, as the disciples often did, and of course, as we often do, they missed kind of the message, and they are looking forward with excitement and anticipation as we get to verse 28 of chapter 19. And this is what it says. It says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Again, road trip, he's making his way there. But it's interesting, one of the things that I want to point out is that all four of the gospel writers do the same thing. The triumphant entry is actually in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what you see as you read through those gospels is that each of the gospel writers kind of slows down their narrative. Instead of kind of taking more time, or, or let me reword that, instead of kind of quickly going through it like what we've seen them do specifically in Luke we get kind of this quick overview of Jesus's ministry he's continuing to travel and tour now what Luke does is he specifically slows down and focuses on the last week of Jesus's life so through the rest of Luke what we're going to actually see is that it's all the events that happen in about one week span and so what we do is we take kind of a, what was a broader look and all of the gospel writers kind of narrow it down for us to see the emphasis of what is happening as Jesus travels and ministers and now makes it into Jerusalem. Uh, the app, Life Application Concise New Testament Commentary, that's a mouthful, says it this way. It says, until this point, Luke presented a sampling of Jesus' ministry his teaching and his miracles. But with this description of Jesus's final entry into Jerusalem, Luke, just like the other gospel writers, slows down his narrative, taking to present the powerful details of Jesus's final week leading up to the cross. So continuing on verses 29 and 30, it says this, and when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the, mountain, at the mount that is called Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cult tied and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it 
and bring it here. Jesus is nearing the end of this road trip. In fact, in our text today, what we're going to see is we don't actually see Jesus make it into the city of Jerusalem, but we see that he's within eyesight of the town. In fact, the way that it worked was that the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem were both kind of set on hills, right, with a valley between them. And so basically the Mount of Olives was a little bit taller. If I remember correctly, it's like uh, 2,700, I think it was meters above sea level. Maybe it was feet, don't remember. And then uh, Jerusalem was about 2,400 meters uh, above sea level. And then, like I said, a valley in between them. And on the Mount of Olives basically is where you see Bethany and Bethpage. Basically, the direction that Jesus was coming, he would pass through Bethany, and then he would go through Bethpage. Bethany is an interesting city because this is where Jesus had his encounter where he raised Lazarus from the dead. So if you remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so Jesus has probably been there many times. In fact, it's possible that even during this last week that this could have been where Jesus stayed because they're within two miles of Jerusalem. So it's not far, uh, too far of a stretch to think that maybe Jesus stayed there in the evening and then each day made his way into Jerusalem. We're not really sure. That's just kind of a thought. But again, this would have been a town that Jesus would have been familiar with, and the people probably would have been familiar with Jesus if just for the very fact that here is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It could have been, uh, it's hard to kind of pinpoint when exactly that was. I've read a lot of different things. Some of them said it was probably within the last two weeks. Some of them said it was within the last week. Some of them said it was later than that. So probably within the last three months, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And therefore, what you would imagine is that word has gotten out. People are talking. People are amazed. People that are traveling to Jerusalem for this Passover festival, they're going to want to see Jesus, especially if Jesus has come through their town, came through their city. There is an excitement for what is about to happen. And so what we see is that there is uh, 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 this passage that Jesus is going through. We'll see, like I said, Jesus is going to see Jerusalem. And then at the end of this, what we see is his response to seeing Jerusalem. But he's working his way through Bethany and Bethpage. And then as we get to 30, what I love in verse 30 is that as I read through Scripture, I often wonder, like, did, did did the disciples see things exactly the way they were here or do they think through things and have some weird strange thoughts like as I read through scripture I just put myself into the story and I think through things and I'd be like what would that have been like so as we get to verse 30 where Jesus says hey you're going to go into town there's a donkey a cult specifically that has never been ridden you're going to grab that cult and bring him here like I wonder if the disciples were like okay so so Jesus you want me to go do what I'm, I'm going to go into that town. I'm going to see a donkey tied up. I'm going to untie him and bring him here. That, that's what you want me to do? Like, just take him. Like, I don't mean to question you, Jesus, but it sounds a lot like stealing, okay? I mean, I don't know. It just kind of seems like I'm just going to take this without permission. I'm just going to grab, okay, we're, we're borrowing it. Okay, I've heard that before. Like, I don't know. That's how I read into the story. I don't know if the disciples did that or not. But they, I wonder if they were just confused or, or struggled at all with this. Like, Jesus, is this a test? Maybe it's a test. Is this? No, it's not a test. Okay. All right. 
I guess I'll go get a donkey. The, the other thing that the, this passage doesn't talk about, and guys, I'm going to be reading a lot of my thoughts into this. Sorry about that today. It's just the nature of this. I just wondered what two of the disciples Jesus actually sent, right? Like, because as you think through some of the characters in the, the disciples, like, I don't know. Are we okay? Do I need to do anything different, guys? Okay. Uh, as we think through those disciples, I, I wonder, like, certain ones probably Jesus wouldn't send. Like, in my mind, he's probably not sending, uh, like, Peter, right? Because Peter's kind of the guy of action. And I just, in my mind, I think that Peter was down to steal a donkey at any point, right? Like, he just would have done it, like, yeah, Jesus, I got this. I'll go get it. You want me to get a horse, too? Like, do you want any chickens? Should I pick up them? Like, I just imagine. And then when I think of, like, James and John, right? Like, James and John, I don't know what you have to do to get the nickname the Sons of Thunder, but I just imagine that Jesus probably wouldn't send them to go get this donkey either. I, I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. This is all kind of my thoughts on the scripture. And then, like, Matthew, right? Matthew was a tax collector. Do you send a tax collector? Because, I don't know, tax collectors weren't very liked. I don't know if they would have done that. In my thoughts, I do think that one of the disciples, that just again, my opinion, I think that Philip was sent on his way. And the reason I think Philip is because the name Philip is a male, is a name for a male derived from the Greek word meaning horse-loving or fond of horses. So I imagine that a donkey is similar to a horse. So Philip, Philip, you're up, buddy. The horse whisperer. There he is. Go get me this donkey. I don't know. And then the only other person I could think of, uh, it could have been any of the disciples, but you're probably not going to send Judas. I don't know. Would you? Maybe. I don't know. The other person I thought was Andrew. Andrew's name means manly or masculine. And so apparently, uh, my thought is, is that maybe he grew a lot of chest hair and it kind of looked and felt maybe like a donkey. I don't know. That's just my assumption that Jesus sent Andrew and Philip to go get this donkey. But either way, he sends them off. He goes, go untie it and bring it here. And then continuing on, verse 31 says this. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. That's it. The Lord has need of it. So Jesus sends the two disciples off. They go, they, they find this donkey just as they see. But again, I'm wondering what they're thinking. Like they're going, okay, so if we're asked and questioned about the donkey, what we say is that the Lord has need of it. And we're going to see this Lord, uh, this word Lord again in, in a few minutes. Now, Lord was a, a very specific word. It could mean Jesus, like referring to him in his proper, like capital L, Lord. But also Lord was a word that they would have used in that culture and in that time. It, it really was anybody that had ownership of something. So Lord with like a little L would have been something that they were familiar with. So in essence, with donkeys being valuable, Jesus is basically saying, okay, disciples, go take that person's car and bring it here. Like the equivalent of this would be if you were sitting in your driveway, two people come running up, they get in your minivan and start backing out of your driveway. And then Jesus' answer of what they should do in case somebody questions them is the equivalent of you going, hey, what are you doing? And they go, it's okay, the owner needs it. And you go, I thought I was the owner. Right? Like, it's, it's not a very in-depth 
description or like, here's what you're going to do. So I just wonder what the disciples were thinking in this moment. Were they trusting completely? Were they a little bit like, oh man, this is a bit of a stretch. I don't know. After the three years of ministry, on one hand, you got to think that, man, they would have seen and heard all of these miraculous things that Jesus has done right? Like on some level, maybe they just wouldn't be surprised. Maybe they didn't even bat an eyelash. Go, all we got to do is say Jesus needs it. And they were comfortable with that. But me, as I inject myself into the story, man, I'd be super uncomfortable. Be like, Lord, I don't know if I would do well in prison. Like, I just don't know. Like, I I inject myself that and just wonder what these disciples would have thought. And so continuing on in verse 32, it says this, Uh, And I should point out, actually, before I get to verse 32, I mentioned that all four of the Gospels share this story, but in Mark's version of it, in Mark 11.3, it does say, as Jesus is giving instructions, Mark records, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say to the, uh, say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So there is this idea and understanding from Mark's Gospel that it was just a borrowed donkey, all right? So Jesus wasn't stealing. want to make that clear. If you're new here, we don't advocate that Jesus sinned. That's not what happened, okay? So Jesus didn't steal, but borrows it. And so continuing on verse 32, it says this. So those who were sent away, uh, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Again, I, I don't know if they were questioning or worried or like anxious. What if somebody asks us what we're doing? I don't know. That's my interpretation as I read into it. Maybe for them, they're just going, wow, here's another example of Jesus. Here's another example of how God is moving and working, how this miracle, it's another miracle that Jesus can kind of predict and know the future. And so uh, it also seems a little bit out of character that Jesus would actually kind of draw some attention to himself, right? Like the fact that he's going to travel on a donkey, this something that's kind of new that we really haven't seen before so even for the disciples in that sense maybe they're going well this feels a little bit different like what is happening here I I don't fully understand and get it and specifically for me as I read through this passage one of the things that I thought about was like that verse 30 that says that no one has ever sat on this donkey and I wondered why in the world would God care if anybody had sat or ridden on this donkey before what is what is the purpose there and and we're going to get to it in just a moment but we we understand that Jesus is fulfilling um, prophecy some old testament prophecy but even in that I, I did research a little bit to try and find why it made a difference that this donkey had never been sat on and one of the reasons that I, I found was that it's possible that Jesus wanted to kind of show another miracle that here is this untrained donkey this cult this baby basically of a donkey that it, it's even in its infancy is submitting to Jesus Like, that could be a pretty powerful, powerful testimony. Again, mostly to the disciples. Mostly to those that maybe knew, you know, knew of the donkey. Probably not to the crowds, but this could be a miracle that they could see that Jesus was doing this. The other thing that it could be is that uh, in the Old Testament, in specific examples, there's a a few different scriptures that in order for an animal to be kind of set apart, to be sanctified, it couldn't be for an ordinary purpose. Like you couldn't just have your normal donkey that does everyday things, then kind of be, uh, uh, you know, sanctified and be presented to be used as holy because they needed to be set apart. 
So an unridden cult uh, could be set apart or sanctified for a holy purpose. This uh, specification uh, that it would be a cult that has never been ridden is significant in light of the ancient rule that only animals uh, that had not been used for ordinary purposes were appropriate for sacred purposes. I think more than anything, what's so different about this story, what's so important for us to understand is that Jesus is kind of orchestrating the fulfillment of prophecy. So Jesus, as he goes through everything, even in this coming week, he is orchestrating the fulfillment of prophecy, which the disciples don't see and understand all the time. I think some of the things they may have understood, like when we get to the crowds cheering this Messiah, they understand probably from what the Old Testament says, but the disciples just seem to miss it in the moment, which is very much like what we do. I think it's important as Jesus was making his triumphal entry, this was his messianic pronouncement. In most of his ministry up to this point, Jesus was pretty quiet about uh, the fact that he was the Messiah. It's almost like there's a switch that has turned in this last week. Before it was kind of like, shh, don't tell anyone. But now, because before wasn't his time, but now his time had come. Now things were different. Now he wants the world to see that he is the promised Messiah. And so what we see is that he's, again, orchestrating the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. It says, Jesus' goal was to go to Jerusalem and to present himself to the religious leaders as the Messiah. Now he arrived in Jerusalem and ministered there. Up to this time, Jesus had not sought to openly be called Messiah, but now he allowed it and even encouraged it. Everything that he did over the course of these days was designated to call attention to the fact that he was the Messiah. And so continuing on, verses 33 and 34, it says this, And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Again, wondering if they're like, Oh no, here it is. Like, you ever feel like somebody questions you, even though what you're doing is okay, and there's a little bit of angst in that? Like, you're like, uh, uh, okay, no, it's good. I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to do this. Like, this happens, and the owner's cool with it. Okay. That, again, that word owner there just kind of shows uh, this. Let me read it to make sure that I get it right. The word owner there is a person exercising absolute ownership rights. So as we talk about the Lord needs of it, that would apply to Jesus. He's the Lord and he owns all things. But also that, that word Lord could mean this owner of this donkey. It's interesting in that moment that Jesus is kind of saying, hey, while you may own the donkey, I own all things because I'm the promised Messiah. Not a a direct statement, but something that we can kind of see and glean and kind of see what's happening, that Jesus is essentially saying that he owns all things. They respond to Jesus, or they respond the way that Jesus tells them to. The two disciples say, the Lord needs it, and for whatever reason, this owner allows it. He he lets them take it with the promise that they would be bringing it back, as Mark says, and and, and I don't know why. Like, maybe they thought that they were, uh, this was their opportunity to be hospitable to people that were traveling uh, to Jerusalem. Maybe uh, they, they knew of Jesus. Maybe they were even a disciple of his, and so there was maybe even an excitement of being able to to let this Messiah kind of use their donkey. 
Uh, it's, it's something that was dignitaries could do, specifically Roman officials. If they desired to, they could commandeer someone's horse or donkey or whatever it was and kind of use it for a time because they were dignitaries. So maybe even this, this person that owns a donkey is thinking along those terms and allowing Jesus to do that. Or maybe even just from Jesus' trips to Bethany, m- maybe he, he knows them. I, I don't know. But whatever reason, they allow it. Verse 35 says this, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So the two disciples venture out, find this uh, colt, just as Jesus says, answer the owner, bring it back, do what he says. (laughs) But I also wonder in that, if they ever thought, like, I wonder if they passed, you know, along the way, any horses, right? Like, if in their minds they thought, huh, this is the best we can do? Like, again, if this is Jesus's, you know, uh, messianic announcement, his pronouncement, they could probably find a better option. Like, in my mind, as, like, you're thinking through this, like the party planning committee, they, they were kind of shooting or keeping the level pretty low, but if I was on the planning party committee, I would be doing a lot more than just a donkey, right? Like, there would be more excitement. Like, in my mind, I'm going, okay, let's make the first sky message the world has ever seen. Like, we're going to release doves. And Jesus, you're, you're overall creation, so make the doves fly in a specific pattern that'll be the first sky message we ever see. Like, I'm going to have banners. I'm going to do everything. Like, I make a grand entry into my home every time I come home, all right? Like, I'm, I, I am not a king. I don't have any special announcements. But every time I come in, it's like, boom, I'm here. My dogs are all excited. They're, they're excited for my glorious arrival. My wife is unimpressed. But I am home making a grand entry. So in my mind, I'm going, man, if they're going to sell this thing, this is Jesus' opportunity. Like, he could showboat here a little bit. Like, this is it. The world is going to know that the Messiah has come. And so what does Jesus choose to do? He just borrows a donkey. I would be looking for a horse, all right? There was a, a running joke in the youth ministry years ago. Like, and, and this is the, just keep it up for now, or actually you can go back and we'll come to that in a second, right? Like there was a running joke within the youth ministry years ago when I was a part of it that when I was about to marry Hope, they were like all excited and they were like, Ben, when you get married, what minivan are you going to drive? And I found it super offensive because like Andrew, I'm manly, all right? I don't want no minivan or a Prius, all right? But I will say thank you for those of you that are conscious of the environment. We appreciate that, but I don't want it, all right? I do manly things like oak dead things with sticks. And when the check engine light comes on, I look inside and I go, yep, there's an engine. Like, I do manly things. Every time, it's like, there it is. I don't know what I'm expecting. Like, I open it up and like, oh, it's gone. That's the problem. Anyway, that's... <laughs> Usually it's more complicated than that. But like, I don't want a minivan. So again, if I'm choosing, I'm getting on something like this, like you just saw. I am not getting on something like this. Just not doing that, okay? For you, how would you arrive? Would you choose this, option A, stallion? Or would you choose option B, a donkey? I got one more for you, okay? Would you choose option A? Beautiful, right? Or option B? B, a donkey. <laughs> now, I don't, think, I don't think anybody here is really choosing option B. You can go ahead and get rid of that. Otherwise, people are just going to make 
comments about the donkey and me and not use the word donkey. Anyway, um, I'm glad only some of you got that. Maybe that was inappropriate. I don't even know what I'm saying. That was not in my, my notes here to talk about. So, but I wonder what the, the disciples were thinking in that time, right? Like, man, if this is Jesus's opportunity to announce to the world that he is the king of kings, that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited, appointed Messiah. Man, just a donkey? Like, there's so much more that could be done. There's so much more that, that Jesus could announce with pomp and circumstance. Like, in my mind, what he should do is make this kind of like the Aladdin movies, like that procession into Agrabah. Like, that's what his announcement should look like to me. But that's not how he comes. He comes riding on the back of a borrowed donkey. He didn't even own a donkey. And as I studied this, I kind of already mentioned this, and we're going to get to that Old Testament scripture in just a second. Um, donkeys symbolize kind of a civil movement, not a military procession. So a horse would demonstrate power and a chariot, like these things would demonstrate and model like that they came as a conquering hero. But a donkey was more used in civil matters, right? This is what it says. It says officials use donkeys for civil, not military processions. Thus, this text is not a triumphant entry into the sense of Roman triumphal procession. It's Jerusalem's reception of a meek and a peaceful king. Jesus' humbly entry, uh, Jesus's humbly, humble entry is a symbolic action that was meant to show that his kingdom was not of this world. He did not come to rule with force or violence. His refusal to take action as a political leader or military conqueror demonstrates that his kingdom is spiritual. See, the Jews were waiting for a long-awaited Messiah, but in their mind, they were, come, they were waiting for a conquering hero. They were waiting for somebody to come and overthrow Rome, and they would get rid of Rome and establish Israel back to its former glory. And Jesus came with a different purpose, going, no, 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 I am the chosen Messiah, and I have come for a kingdom, but the kingdom that I established is not one of this world. And so they, they in their excitement, they, they slightly, it's slightly skewed, and they miss what Jesus is actually doing. Just like they missed the story of him going, hey, I'm going to go away for a time, but I'll come back. And as I'm away, be faithful stewards of everything that I give to you. In Zechariah 9.9, there's this Old Testament prophecy that talks about a donkey. I want to read it to you. It says, uh, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, fall, uh, the, the foal of a donkey. He came in a royal fashion, not as a warring king on a horse or in a chariot, but as a gentle and peaceable king on a donkey's colt. As evidenced by verse 38, which we're going to read in just a second, the crowds would understand this message behind the symbolism. So Jesus comes peaceably, not by a show of force, not showing that he's some ruler or some dictator, that he's some conquering hero in the sense that they were all hoping for, but he came to establish a spiritual kingdom. Continuing on, 36 through 38 says this, And as he rode, they spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. 
saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I really want you to see the excitement in this, this, this time, right? I really want you to get a feel for what is happening. Like, and it's an easy kind of illustration as we, you know, as we think about today is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, tonight, you know, big championship game that's happening. And there's a lot of buildup to that, right? Like, and maybe this is a good connection. Maybe some of you can follow this. Maybe some of you are like, dude, I don't even care about football. That's Either way, but I'm trying to let you kind of have a taste or an understanding of the buildup that has happened for the last three years to this moment. But just like there is a building up to the Super Bowl, there's a building up in Jesus' ministry. Uh, several years ago, I think it was for uh, Super Bowl 48, um, it was the one that happened in uh, New York, or I say New York is actually New Jersey, but you know what I mean. Um, it, I remember being in the city like the week before the Super Bowl, and there was banners everywhere. It was literally impossible for you to somehow forget that the Super Bowl was this coming weekend, right? Like, there was so much hype and so much buildup and so much anticipation. Like, all this past week, sportscasters, while there are other sports going on and they are talking about it, there is information overload about what is happening for this big game, right? Like, as you think about, like, I heard this past week that there was 30,000 in attendance to see the Bengals off from their stadium. 30,000. They weren't playing a game. They were just going, hi, <laughs> right? 30,000, there's a buildup and an excitement and an anticipation. And as the teams come onto the field, they don't just kind of casually walk on like, hey, glad to be here. I, I don't know if they're coming out as a team, they're gonna individually be announced. Like, I feel like there's been a change in the last few years, but there is an excitement, right? There's hype videos that come out. There's like the most exciting song that they can play in the stadium. There is like music and fireworks and uh, you know, everything. Like if there's mascots, there's mascots. If there's cheerleaders, there's cheerleaders. If there's pyrotechnics, there's so many different things. There is a production that happens to get you hyped and excited about what is happening. Jesus' ministry is similar to the excitement except Jesus wasn't the one that built the hype. Jesus had just simply come, and his idea for his triumphal entry is to ride on the back of a donkey. That's it. And so for three years, what we see is that uh, the, the crowds have been following Jesus as his popularity has grown, as well as his hatred. We see for three years, he performed miracle after miracle after miracle, and crowds are curious. They're coming alongside. For three years, he's healed the sick, the lame, the blind. He's brought the dead back to life. And there is this attraction and this draw that people are leaning in, that he is making the kingdom of God something that is accessible something that wasn't just for the religious elite. Now, all of a sudden, there's this excitement of what Jesus is doing, and their thoughts is that he is going to overthrow the government, that the time is now. I want you to feel that excitement, and as Jesus starts to make his way into Jerusalem, the disciples, from all of the things that they see, are the ones that start the praise. They start to declare all of the things that they've seen. They give God glory and honor, and they're talking about his goodness and singing his praises. They can't help but sing and speak of his majesty and his glory. And then the crowds join in, understanding what this means, seeing their king on a donkey 
fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. They're excited about what is to come. Continuing on in verse 39, it says this. In this excitement, in this celebration, in this kind of buildup of the last three years, <laughs> the religious elite, it says this. It says, and, so, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In kind of what has become the classic religious leader's response, they have missed everything that Jesus is doing. I, even that, I, I don't want to say that they just missed. They willfully, intentionally chose to not see. Instead of looking through eyes of excitement and faith, they chose to live in pride and arrogance and go, no, 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 that is not our Messiah. That is not him. We don't want things to be changed. We don't want our rule and our reign and our way of doing things to be upset. So no, 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 that is not our Messiah. So Jesus, you need to get your disciples to stop. And I love what Jesus said. He goes, if they remain silent, even the rocks will cry out. There, there is this subtle rebuke that is happening there that he, Jesus is going, hey, if they were quiet, even inanimate objects, things that aren't human beings, things that don't have souls, even they would testify this day of who I am. There's this subtle rebuke here that the Pharisees have missed it. The religious elite have missed it. And I feel like week after week of getting on the stage, they missed it all the time because they intentionally didn't want to. There was a couple different groups that were in this, this following of Jesus that day. You had the disciples who were obeying and following Jesus. You had the Pharisees who were willfully prideful and arrogant, not wanting anything to do it. And then you had the crowds who were swayed by emotion and hype, but still didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. Because those same crowds in less than a week now, there's a lot of things that happen in between there. So next week, we're not talking about Jesus' death on a cross because there's a lot that goes on. But in a week's time, they'd be shouting out, crucify him. They missed it. The religious elite, what, what has become a classic response of them, they once again miss everything that is going on and fail to see Jesus as the promised Messiah. They didn't look through eyes of faith. They looked through their pride, uh, but through pride, and they missed the celebration and the excitement of who Jesus was. What brought hope, wonder, and amazement, uh, what brought hope, wonder, amazement, and excitement to the lost of Israel brought pride, anger, and arrogance from the religious elite. And I would say that it's amazing to see their response, but it's more than amazing. As we'll see in just a moment, Jesus' response, it's heartbreaking. That they willfully chose to miss the Messiah. Jesus responded that the rocks would cry out instead if, if the disciples held back. The Life Application Bible note says this. It says, The Pharisees thought that the crowd's words were sacrilegious and blasphemous. They didn't want someone challenging their power and authority, and they didn't want a revolt that would bring the Roman army down on them. So they asked Jesus to keep his people quiet. But Jesus said that if the people were quiet, the stones would immediately cry out. Why? Not because Jesus was setting up a powerful political kingdom, but because he was establishing God's eternal kingdom, a reason for the greatest celebration of all time. All history had pointed towards this singular, spectacular event when the Messiah publicly presented himself to the nation. And, God's desire, and God desired that this fact be acknowledged. 
So there is this celebration, this joyous outcry from the disciples of all the things that they've seen and all the things that they've miraculously, or all the things that they've been a part of, how Jesus miraculously moved and worked. And so they start to declare his goodness. And the crowds join in. They get excited. They're hyped. They're, they want to see this, this Messiah overthrow what is their, their norm and overthrow the political power of the time. And then we get to verse 41 kind of finishing out this passage 41 through 44 says this and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day that things the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's pretty amazing to see this contrast of celebration and then kind of like we, we pan out and see this excitement and the celebration of the disciples. We see the celebration of the crowds and, and this excitement of everything going on. But then as we zoom in to Jesus, the man that is riding this donkey, what we see is that his heart is broken because he understands that the religious elite and the, the, the majority of the crowds would fail to see him as the Messiah. And Jesus, knowing what would come, kind of speaks out this this prophecy of judgment that would later be fulfilled about 40 years later. So Jesus, as he sees the city, as he comes down the Mount of Olives, I can imagine him looking over and seeing Jerusalem and beginning to weep. For the disciples, it must have been a little bit awkward, right? Like, they're excited and hyped, and then it's like, why is Jesus crying? Like, I don't know. Should we keep going? Yeah, let's just keep praising, right? Jesus is mourning the fact that they are choosing to miss him. He's mourning the fact that judgment will come. He's mourning the fact that this is what will happen because of the choices that they've made. This is the very heart of Christ. This is the very heart of God that if we choose to make our own decisions, then we choose the punishment and and what happens next because of that. In this life, God desires for us to recognize and to see him as the true Messiah, as the Savior, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But if we choose not to, he respects us enough and loves us enough to let us choose that. But we will face the consequences of that. The Life Application Concise New Testament Commentary says this. It says, only Luke records this lament by Jesus. In contrast to the great crowds of joy, or joy of the crowds, the man on the donkey begins to cry at the sight of the city. The name of the city has peace as part of its meaning, but the people of the city did not know what would bring them peace. The city of peace was blind to the Prince of Peace. If the people had known what was truly happening and had recognized it for what it was, they could have found peace. But the Jewish leaders had rejected their Messiah. They had refused God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ when they were visited by God himself. Now the truth would be hidden, and soon their nation would suffer. About 40 years after Jesus said these words, they come true. In AD 66, the Jews revolted against Roman control. Three years later, Titus, son of Emperor uh, Vespartan, if I'm saying that right, was sent to crush the rebellion. 600,000 Jews were killed during Titan's onslaught. This would occur as judgment because though some of the people believed, such as the disciples and other faithful followers, most had rejected the opportunity God offered them. 
But God did not turn away from the Jewish people who obeyed him. He continues to offer salvation to both Jew and to Gentiles. So as we work through this, what does this mean for us? We look at this story, there's some incredible lessons that we can pull out, and I think that faith is one of them. I think when we look at the disciples, man, they had a a faith that, that they could just take this donkey and that Jesus was Jesus and that it would be okay because that's what he instructed them to do. I think that that's an incredible lesson that we could pull out. But I think the two things that are, are so clear for me as we read through this is that the first is that we have to identify our place in the crowd. You have to identify your place in the crowd. Who is Jesus to you? Part of this is that this is in Luke's writing. He is kind of confronting us, the reader, us, you know, 2,000 years later, that we have to make a choice. Who is Jesus to us? So in the crowd, who are you? Are you like the disciples who are obeying and following Jesus? Are you like the the religious elite who are pridefully rejecting and opposing the Savior? Or are you like the crowds where you're swayed by emotion and hype, but still missing that Jesus was the solution, that Jesus was the Messiah? I think it's so critical that we identify where we are, that we understand who Jesus was, and that we identify our place, and then make the decision, who is Jesus to us? It's a decision that only you can make. I can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Your loved one can't make it for you. It's a decision that you have to make. Who do you say that Jesus is? Again, Luke, time after time after time, week after week, is saying this very thing. It's confronting you with it. The application commentary, the NIV application says, Luke's readers of every age are asked, in effect, to choose sides. Jesus' appeal to creation shows how fundamental the claims of the disciples are. Even creation knows they are true. The whole narrative structure of the passage challenges us to ask ourselves where we place Jesus. Is he the humble king of peace and glory or not? So we have to identify our place in the crowd. The other thing that we have to do is that we have to realize that Jesus showed up, that the king had come, that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, had come. Not only did he come on that day 2,000 years ago, but by his work on the cross, by the thing that he's done, by his death and his resurrection, not only does he enter into Jerusalem that day, but he enters into every single situation of our lives. Not only did he just have a triumphal entry on that day so many years ago, he has a triumphal entry into our life, into our circumstance, into our situations each and every single day. We have the opportunity to be in right relationship with him. We have the opportunity to be in right standings with him. Why? Because of what he did, because of who he was, the fact that the king had come, that Christ showed up. I want to end with a video. It's about three minutes long that it's, it's by uh, it's, it's the skit guys is the name of the, the, the guys that put this on. But in it, it's kind of one of the disciples kind of telling what that day would have looked like. So check this out. Okay, let me get this out of the way. I didn't steal that donkey, okay? I, I borrowed it. And, and it wasn't even my idea. Jesus told me to take it, to, to, to borrow it, right? Um, okay, this is this is how it happened. Um, earlier today, there was a large group of us, and we were traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem. We stopped just outside the city, and Jesus looked at two of us, and he said there was an unridden donkey just inside the village and asked us to go get it. 
He said, if anybody, you know, ask us about it, we could just look at him and say, the Lord needs it and he'll send it back. So the two of us beat it into town. And the whole time we were like, what is Jesus going to do with a donkey, right? But by this point, we realized you don't second guess Jesus, right? He hadn't told us why and we didn't ask. We just got him a donkey. And when we got back, <laughs> that's... Uh, that's when it uh, that's when it happened um, some people put their coats on the donkey and Jesus got on the donkey and um, <laughs> when he got on the donkey <sighs> I don't know it's like um, everyone started shouting and dancing and singing and um, some people were throwing their coats in front of the donkey there, there was there was a, a, some of us that grabbed some palm branches and we started waving them in the air and that's when it clicked Jesus had finally arrived um, I know that sounds weird that's it no it's it's like this um, in the past we would get excited because Jesus would do something, a miracle, or he there would be some parable or something he said. We'd get excited about it. And Jesus would always be like, shh, come on, guys. No, 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 nope. Just be quiet, you know. And then we'd come up with some idea. Hey, let's do this or let's do that. And Jesus would, would be like, no, guys, no, not, not now. Not now. But today? <laughs> today was now. Today, he finally let us shout and sing and dance and treat him like the Messiah that we'd all been waiting for. He finally showed up. <laughs> ah, I don't know. Um, I don't know what tomorrow holds. Um, it feels like it's something big, but who knows, you know, but... It doesn't matter what happens because Jesus showed up and there, <laughs> there's nothing better than when Jesus shows up. <laughs> Again, that triumphant entry wasn't just on that day so many years ago. Because of what he's done on the cross, he makes triumphant entry into every situation of our lives. He doesn't advance our kingdom. He doesn't promise to do the things that we think, but he promises that we can be in right relationship with him and that his kingdom will be advanced, that he will be glorified in everything that is said and done. So today we get to celebrate that the king showed up, the Messiah has come, and we get to partake in what he's done by his death and his resurrection on the cross. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you were so great. Lord, you were so good that all of creation declares your goodness. All of creation declares that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, as we sing our final song today, Lord, I pray that you would be, be worshipped and honored, that you would be glorified in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our final song?
So we 
uh, one more time. I'm going to read this scripture to you. It's Luke 19.37. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. My prayer for this church is that we would do exactly that, that we would declare the good works of what we've seen God do, his mighty hand moving and working in our lives, that we would take comfort that he didn't just enter into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but that he enters into our lives and into our circumstances. I hope that everyone has a blessed week, that you are challenged, that God is moving and working, and that you see him for who he is. Uh, I do want to give just two quick announcements that the PNC meeting will be happening in about 10 to 15 minutes, we want to encourage you to get your children first. And then also for those of you that are joining us online, that will be online this afternoon. So you can watch that on our website, clcfamily.church slash PNC later on this afternoon. So thanks for coming, everyone. Have a great and blessed week. Fight. Although the 